also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Welcome back to this episode of Bottleman. It is Riley and Dan once again. Hello. Uh, talking about some Canadian shit. Uh, but <laughs> as per usual, uh, this is some Canadian shit with global implications. That's uh, right. Which, which is unusual for Canada. Usually we do regional implications, national implications, very rarely global. Canada, not in our backyard. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and... Uh, because we're talking today about um, deep sea mining, which I think can be almost seen as a little bit of a kind of sequel to the episode we did about um, CETA, now DFAT-D, uh, funding and how that is sort of used to more or less continue the colonial project that uh, sort of quote unquote ended in the mid 20th century. Um, this is this can be seen as a companion piece to that, but about uh, mining in uh the common heritage of humankind, uh, rather than uh, in specific uh, other countries, which we have deemed uh, worth less than ours. Uh, joining us is uh, Bryce Rudick, uh, who's the Climate Program Director uh, and uh, Adjunct Professor of Law at uh, NYU. Uh, Bryce, how's it going? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. I've, I've been looking forward to talking about this for a while because it combines a great many of my interests. Uh, it combines um, a, a, a coterie of uh, business guys who keep trying kind of different flimflams themed around a around a central premise. Uh, it combines blatant greenwashing and, of course, <laughs> a um, an incredibly uh, an incredibly let's say I don't want to say pumped but certainly overhyped uh, SPAC deal. Uh, that's got just sort of the ESG craze written all over it. You love SPACs. Uh, I lo I think SPACs are very funny because it's like um because like you need to be um uh, it, it, it's like I think allowing um sort of like a, a like a kindergarten to like uh you know start affecting the markets just gets very straight like come on could Donald Trump have listed his like fake for of uh, alternative to Twitter for like right wingers. Could he have listed that in a traditional IPO? No way. Goldman's not going to underwrite that. Uh, but could he list it in a SPAC? You betcha. <laughs> and then a bunch of people can suddenly make it worth billions of dollars. I think that's hilarious. Kind of the public access TV of IPO. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly. It's, 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 uh, it's TVO IPO. <laughs> no. And so this is, so, so this, this story really combines all of that stuff. But, um, before we crack into it, I just want to sort of turn to Bryce, right? When we talk about deep sea mining, you know, what do we what do we mean by deep sea mining? Um, so we we mean um, mining, which is um, really quite far off the coasts of countries, um, and really sort of well beyond uh, about two hundred nautical miles, and it's an area of the ocean which has. Um, little biodiversity in it. There's not a lot of species um, down in these parts of the ocean. Uh, but it turns out that it actually has a number of things that have potentially some uh, significant, we'll see, um, economic value. Uh, so there are these things that are called um, manganese nodules, polymetallic nodules that sort of, they look like little potatoes and they sit on the seafloor. And of course, they contain um, manganese, which is useful in our transition to renewable energy. Um, there are also uh, polymetallic sulfides, uh, which live along, um, sorry, which live along hydrothermal vents uh, all throughout the oceans, actually. And then uh, there are these cobalt-rich crusts, which also uh, are on the seafloor. So a number of minerals, which are useful um, in, in batteries, and which are not particularly plentiful on land or um, not particularly accessible on land. Um, many of these type of minerals are found primarily in parts of Africa um, and then also uh, significantly in China. My understanding of deep sea mining uh, comes from 
two media sources, both of which are could be classified as science fiction. One is James Cameron's 1986 uh, epic underwater uh, movie, The Abyss. And uh, the other is um, former guest of, uh, and hopefully future guest of Bottleman, Peter Watts' Behemoth trilogy, which is a uh, cosmic horror slash, uh, like, amped up Michael Crichton um, apocalyptic series of books about uh, deep sea bacteria coming up from a uh, deep sea mining operation and uh, completely wiping out humanity in a grisly way. <laughs> God, Peter Watts fucking loves to write about some kind of uh, incomprehensible horror wiping out humanity. It's his favorite topic. Those books, if if I could say, those books are like bleaker than Blind Sight. I'm not sure, Br- uh, Bryce, if you've read Blind Sight, but uh, yeah, good good stuff. Really good speculative fiction. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that the the reality of it is is quite like either of those books. Um, and these, so the, particularly with the the manganese nodules, they just sort of sit on the the, the seafloor and they can be scooped up. Um, how much disturbance of the seafloor happens um, when they're scooped up, uh, that's, well, significant debate. Um, obviously, the companies that are planning on doing this saying not a lot of destruction. Scientists are saying considerable destruction. Um, but it's not sort of like digging massive trenches and massive machines down um, down on the seafloor. Um, yeah. I mean, look, the last time that uh, that sort of a scientific consensus and then some corporate PR materials had a disagreement about whether or not a certain kind of extractive enterprise will fuel a lot of global environmental disruption. I recall that that went fine <laughs> and then everything was okay. Uh, so this, and, and I, I read a, um, a, a, a press release from uh, one of these uh, deep sea mining companies and they said no disruption at all. It's actually more environmentally friendly to do more of it, uh, apparently. Yeah, I, I read this as well, that it was more environmentally friendly to do this in the deep sea rather than doing it on land. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not a scientist, so I, I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, but I think it's more likely that we don't see it in the deep sea where we do see it on land. And so there's probably a bunch of crap that's happening um, in the deep sea. But yeah, we, we can't see it. So we'll say, oh, it's, it's not, as, not as harmful. This is basically yeah. like the old dump in my whole hometown. There was a there was a dump for like municipal waste, like you know, if a bus broke down, and they just basically dragged these things out to the forest and left them in a big pile. And then after you know, sometime during the maybe after Silent Spring came out, but like sometime in the seventies, uh, people in Couch and like were like, "Oh shit, we can't just throw things out there because they're just leaching into the groundwater." Yeah, we do. In, in other areas, certainly use the, the sea as a, as a dump. Plastics, chemicals, uh, nuclear waste in some cases. So. Hey, well, so why not also use it as a mine? <laughs> Things love being dumps in mines. That is exactly how they should be. You need to um, mine the dump. Yeah, exactly. Look, you, it's, that's the circle of life. You mine the dump and then you make the stuff. You dump it back down there and you mine it again. As far as I'm aware, that's recycling. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that the the things that we're dumping into the ocean are becoming polymetallic nodules um, <laughs> or cobalt crust or, or anything. Um, I, I did. I sort of learned this a few days ago that these um, these crusts and nodules grow exceptionally slowly. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that. Um, is this a finite resource, or is this something that is uh, is being excreted by the crust of the Earth underneath uh, underneath the ocean? So. Um, not entirely known for all three of those things. Um, for for the manganese nodules, uh, they grow very slowly. So uh, a couple of millimeters or a few millimeters to a few centimeters um, over the course of a million years. Uh, <laughs> Great. So- Fantastic. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought you were, I thought it was going to be like 10,000 years. No, a million. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Not, all right. Se- not all right. centuries, not thousand, a, a million years. So for, for all intents and purposes, these are, these are non-renewable resources. Okay. Yeah, right. Perfect. Uh, so, and, the, and the interesting thing, right, is uh, that the, the PR is put out by the companies. So we're going to sort of get deeper into one of the, the main company sort of as we get on. Uh, likes to talk about, oh, we only have to do this for long enough 
that we can scale up our uh, the material that we need in order to um, just propel the self-sustaining economy into action. So if we make, you know, if we scale up our, our sort of global battery production, for example, by like 10,000%, it's going to be a big jump, but then we're, we're going to be able to recycle them by then, presumably through magic. Um, and so then we won't need to mine anymore. So it doesn't matter that it's not a renewable resource, is that because we're just going to mine all of it and that's going to be enough because we assume by the time we're done mining, it will be able to recycle it. And that's just the kind of wild fucking hockster optimism that you would see like a snake oil salesman passing from town to town. By the time you're done the bottle, you won't need another one. You don't. It seems like you don't believe in a utopia, Riley. Yeah, that's ah. sorry. I didn't do fully automated luxury communism. Um, but let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Like, this is deep sea mining, right? It's this, as you say, it is going down and collecting these. Uh, batteries, sort of uh, all the materials you can need for a battery, and there's something the size of a potato that takes millions and millions and millions of years to form, um, causing a question mark amount of disruption. Scientists say a lot. Companies standing to profit from it say, "Don't worry about it." Besides, you do. You don't live down there. Um, it's like we found a, a version of Rogia Montana that we're willing to care about even less. Yes. Um, but Canada specifically quite likes deep sea mining. In fact. The biggest, uh, pro- biggest company sort of that's proponent of deep sea mining uh, is uh, registered and uh, registered and headquartered in Canada. Um, uh, and now, of course, Canada loves deep sea mining companies. But as I understand it, what they're promoting that we do, especially in the um, sort of Central and South Pacific, uh, is fully illegal to do in Canadian territorial waters. Um, yeah, we can't do it here, but we are happy to do it elsewhere. Well, that's a good that's a good analogy with Rogia Montana because with the Rogia Montana mine in the Carpathians, the idea was they would uh, use the cyanide extraction to take uh, gold out of uh, out of the sediment, and uh, you would not be able to get away with that in, say, northern Ontario or uh, close to any human settlement <laughs> in Canada. Yeah, Canada Canada loves not just deep sea mining companies, Canada just loves mining companies uh, yeah. listed here, working sort of all around the world. Um, and so for many of these resources, um, except for potentially um, the, the hydrothermal vent sulfides, uh, they don't actually exist either in Canadian territorial waters or in the Canadian exclusive economic zone. These are things sort of happening um, well, well beyond that. Although there, there may be some um, of the hydrothermal vents and sulfides off the west coast, but aside from that, they're just they're they're just not in our waters. Um, and so, in some sense, regulating uh, the extraction in our waters is uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of pointless. Fair enough. But um, so, but regardless, we do we do like it. We like mining. We support global mining. We think it's great. Um, and this is this is an, another sort of Canadian theme here, which is that uh, the company uh, is called the Metals Company, TMC. That's the the big, the big proponent, the one that's headquartered and based in Canada. Um, and they are claiming to do to do something. They are claiming to uh, they are engineering. Uh, they're developing. Sorry, lower impact battery metals. Um, and I don't know, uh, Bryce, if you're familiar with the ethical oil push of the uh, early 2010s, but to me, this kind of feels like something similar, where you're saying, uh, we, where you say, look, we, we want to do our extractive industry, but we want to feel good about it. Uh, and we want people to, and we want sort of the, um, uh, an increasingly environmentally conscious public to support it. And so in the, 2000, in the early 2010s, uh, there was this big push. If I have uh, fucking, um, uh, 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 Ezra Levant was a big, big believer in this, actually, from the rebel of uh, this thing, ethical oil, where if we don't extract from oil from Can- the Canadian tar sands, where we say um, we, we have uh, uh, environmental regulations, then, oh, well, maybe China's going to do it somewhere else and they're not going to pay as much attention to the environment. Or we, or we have to import Saudi oil or yeah. whatever. So it's crucial as, an, as, a, a, as a moral and uh, climate. Uh, 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 um, uh, urgent need that we must have as much Canadian oil as possible because it's more ethical. And I feel like something is, I'm hearing something a little bit similar with this, right? Well, oh, it's lower impact battery metals. It is green mining. But really, it's just what they're actually doing is they're not 
engineering a lower impact battery uh, metal because you can't engineer not engineering there's going and getting it um but it's from as you say this place that's out of sight so you don't see the uh tar sands for example which is politically becomes politically contentious yeah i would just on the, the the ethical oil obviously if we were particularly concerned about greenhouse gases we would stop using canadian tar sands oil immediately it's incredibly polluting we should much rather use um, Saudi oil or, or cleaner sources of oil. Um, so it's not impossible to have um, lower impact both batteries and um, exploitation of the natural resources for the batteries. Um, and we certainly should be striving towards that. Whether or not these companies are actually doing that or they're just saying that they're doing that, um, that still remains to be seen. Um, because I think we have to remember that this uh, exploitation hasn't happened yet. Um, we're still exploring um, these zones uh, around the world for the, these minerals. We haven't actually started exploiting them yet. Um, and so while there is uh, some of the technology to do the exploitation, um, it isn't uh, fully completed yet. So knowing what the full environmental impact of this is, um, is unknown. I, I can't think of another resource like in my lifetime that um, hasn't already been started to be extracted. You know what I mean? So this is like a very w weird, rare, as far as I know, like rare situation where there's the, pot the potential to regulate this before it starts. <laughs> yeah. So the, the reason that it hasn't been extracted yet, it's just not economically viable to extract um, at this point. So one, sorry, it's, it's not economically viable, or certainly when the initial regulation was put in in the, the 70s and 80s, it wasn't economically viable. Um, and then there's been a relatively strict regulatory regime covering these resources in the deep sea that haven't allowed them to be exploited. Now that they probably are economically viable, uh, such that we have companies uh, launching SPACs to, um, to to, to lead to this exploitation, there's now pressure to create regulations that allow this. And, and I guess, as you say, what happened, the, the thing that's made it economically viable is the, yeah, the sort of switch to electric cars, battery technology, which in itself is sort of fine. But I, it always goes back to um, where uh, it's, yes, uh, electric cars are better than internal combustion engines. But what's better than having sort of, you know, I don't know, let's say 20 million batteries <laughs> across Canada is to have as like more trains. <laughs> like it's, it's, and, and so forth, right? Like, like to, to have, to have solutions to the climate crisis and transportation and stuff that don't involve as many individual car journeys as we have now, right? It, it seems like to be, to keep up that level of, um, you would say, yeah, the individualization of transport infrastructure. It requires sort of this intensive exploitation, whether of battery metals or oil or what have you, right? So electric vehicles certainly are better for the climate um, in that as long as the energy is generated in uh, a renewable manner, then they're releasing less greenhouse gases into the environment. Uh, but the production of those electric vehicles, both the vehicles themselves and then the batteries, um, they're leading to a whole host of other environmental problems like this one. Um, that we're not necessarily seeing uh, with oil. We're seeing a whole bunch of different um, environmental problems with oil. So we're, we're helping one environmental issue, climate change, which is exceptionally pressing and which we have to deal with, but we may be creating another environmental problem. Mm. So what are some of the environmental problems that we think we could be creating? Because I've, I've seen some lists of them, and at least as regards deep sea mining, just focusing on that one, it seems as though the list is quite long and uh let's say especially if you are a uh have a sort of um dependence on uh fishing for example or like to eat fish or just like to eat and live near fish it could be quite catastrophic yes so uh i think we have to say that for many of these uh impacts at this point it is relatively speculative because we don't know the exact way that these things are going to be exploited but it could certainly have impacts on sort of local species in the area of exploitation. 
Um, to the extent that there are significant disturbances, um, releases of these chemicals into the, the water column, into the, the rest of the ocean, then it may have impacts on uh, fish species. There may be bioaccumulation in fish such that by the time they get to humans, a uh, greater percentage of these chemicals are in the fish. Um, and then there just may just sort of be the damage to the, the, the broader ecosystem um, in the area. Albeit these ecosystems, particularly in the deep sea, they're not, um, uh, they're, they're not amazing. It's not like we're talking about sort of this like beautiful coral reef with a ton of biodiversity. Um, but there certainly is biodiversity and there is biodiversity that is often only found um, in these areas. Uh, I was reading a study uh, earlier this week about species, particularly in the Clarion Clipperton zone, which is the primary area where we're doing this exploration for the, the nodules. Um, and half of the species that they're finding are only found um, in that area. So we're, we're not we're not talking about cute and or colorful animals. We're talking about um, the like. Uh, let me th like like a long segmented worm that lives under uh, vast amounts of pressure and like bacteria and uh, grotesque crab like things. That's what I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're certainly not talking cute and cuddly. We're probably talking really really ugly. Yeah. Probably not going to do. Uh, probably not going to do so well on a poster. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was just thinking about a PR campaign with some yeah. just like Lovecraftian crab monster and just like. Yeah. So, yeah. Save the really specific segmented uh, glowing worm that lives off the chemicals <laughs> released by this vent. Yes. Um, if we want to like sort of go into a science fiction vein, we could certainly say that um, this thing um by some interaction with the chemicals is going to grow monstrous and climb its way out of the sea. Pretty unlikely. Um, but if we have to structure. That's great. That's great. Anti-kaiju messaging is very important. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is we could, is, is this company, uh, the metals company is about to do a Pacific rim, or at least it would, <laughs> if it wasn't, um, if it wasn't basically, uh, yeah, like a, uh, uh, let's say a very strange spec that's the target of some short reports. Um, yeah, I, I, but uh, it, so what to hear the, them describe it, right? They say it's a very deep, dark, very monotonous kind of place, said uh, Greg Stone, who was their chief ocean scientist in a podcast interview in 2019. We're not talking about vibrant corals. We're not talking about herds of tuna or whales. The, the impact of nodule mining, the longer term disruption, if you can even call it that, will certainly settle down within months. Um, and I, I don't know if that, that seems very certain to me. And also, as you say, right, as you sort of kick up a lot of these, you kick up some dust, you have a lot of chemicals that are going into the water and so on. Um, and that accumulates in fish and then the people eat the fish and then that accumulates in the people. But also like global fish populations are, a, a lot of them are quite strained. And so it seems like putting stress on them from the bottom of the sea also is not the best idea. <sighs> Yeah, I don't. So I don't know exactly the species that are down sort of um, on this seafloor. And I don't know exactly what's eating them. But uh, if we can think about these things that are living on the seafloor a little like um, insects in our terrestrial environment um, as sort of being the, the, the base of what other species are eating. Um, if the same thing is happening here, that these are being eaten by species, which are then are being um, eaten by fish, certainly disturbing them may have an impact on um, on the rest of the chain. But this idea that um, that this thing um, is is monotonous and ugly, um, well, we have uh, monotonous ecosystems um, uh, on Earth, on the sort of the, the dry part of Earth, and deserts, um, which have yeah, a tremendous it's, amount. It's the tremendous amount of. <laughs> yeah, well. ever driven the 401. I mean, that is one of the world's most monotonous ecosystems. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm yeah. I'm not sure how much biodiversity there is um, on the 401, but there's certainly Hill people. There's Etobicoke people. There's some Oakville people. Sometimes <laughs> a lot of biodiversity. It's oafs, mostly Protestant oafs. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, so you're saying. Uh, so it's just saying that even in these monotonous areas, there is um, there is biodiversity. 
um, and just sort of look at them and say, oh, this is monotonous, therefore we don't care, is probably a bad way to think about it. And indeed, what they should be saying is there is biodiversity here, and this is the way that we're going to protect it. Yeah. I was also thinking, like, if these are rarefied ecosystems that are specific to, like, their geographical location and and these, uh, you know, whatever, the, the ugly animals have grown up under intense environmental pressures, uh, heat, cold, uh, like, just the sheer mass of the ocean, it might be good to s- preserve these areas and and study them in case things above the water change. You know, I, I just feel like there's there's definitely... There's probably something you can extrapolate from from these little pockets of biodiversity. Yeah, we see this sort of uh, in the terrestrial environment all the time, little pockets of biodiversity um, in the rainforest that have uh, beneficial genomes that are useful in, in other things that we do. Um, and particularly these sort of these seamounts around the ocean, they're very isolated from other areas. And so they're going to have species um, on one seamount, which may not be on a seamount that's 10 kilometers away. Um, and so just to say, okay, well, we, we surveyed this one seamount and we're like, mm, nothing particularly interesting here. Well, that, that doesn't actually uh, do a good job of finding all of what may be interesting um, on the seafloor. And, and so this, uh, just sort of going further to this, sort of these, especially the, um, the metals company, or as it was known then, Deep Green, Deep Green, muff, muff. Fuck me. Um, uh, this is uh, from the Financial Post uh, regarding them. It says, before deleting his LinkedIn profile, former Deep Green environmental scientist Jason Michelle Smith wrote a post in late 2020 warning people not to trust the company, that he was fired after conflicts with executives, and, quote, combating an anti-science private agenda on the daily. Uh, attempts by the Financial Post to reach him were unsuccessful. But basically, is like, um, what's what I think what that sort of says, and especially if you look at what they're, what they're doing politically, specifically this company, what they're doing politically, is they appear to be trying to um, hasten uh, the, and, and sort of make it an urgent priority that uh, this exploitation be allowed to begin at full scale as soon as possible, right? And so what we're, what we're saying here, right, is what's actually crucial is that before any of this, anything like this is done, the environmental impact has to be known uh, in detail, so we can basically, if we're taking another debit out of the Earth Bank account, it'd be nice to know how much we're taking out, and um, that that you know, but that you know, what they're trying to do actually is is petition uh, the International Seabed Association uh, to be like to just to just green light this, right? To sort of to try and get regulations, very permissive regulations, up and running as soon as possible, as I am given to understand it. Well, they're trying to just get any regulation. So although um, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which governs all activities in the sea, was um, signed in in 1982, uh, it didn't come into force actually until 1995, they've never come up with regulations for the exploitation um, in the deep sea. And there's a a whole bunch of reasons, um, including that the International Seabed Authority um, isn't the most functional international organization that there what? is. Come on, an international an international organization that is not entirely functional and uh, let's just say uh, ends up working very closely with the organizations it's meant to regulate. Come on, that's pretty far fetched. I will, I will, I will say no, no, no comment on on that point. <laughs> um, but there is now this push to create these mining regulations, um, and this push has come from from Nauru, and it actually requires the authority to come up with mining regulations uh, within the next two years. Um, and if they don't come up with these mining regulations in the next two years, well, then mining can happen without the regulations, which of course would likely be a disaster. Um, and so that's why uh, that's why this push is happening now. There's been a lot of exploration of these resources. And now the same people that have done the exploration are trying to move to exploitation of the resources. Indeed. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the relationship with um, uh, between sort of Nauru and, and, um, and, and this sort of transformation of the law, and also how uh, the uh, Gerard, Gerard Baron, the Deep Green CEO, um, ended up 
sort of, you might say, working hand in glove with the, well, I wouldn't say even hand in glove because the relationship is not sort of so, let's say, co-equal, but we'll get into that, um, with uh, Nauru to kickstart this whole process, right? And this is where I think it gets into that form of, this is that other kind of colonialism by other means, I think, you know, that um, that we talked about in the episode about how Canada, Canada, Canada uses its um, has a history of using its development funding to go into countries with minerals and rewrite their mining codes so they're friendly to Canadians. You know, I, I see sort of echoes of that. So, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about this. What's the relationship between the metals company Nauru and this changing regulation? So when uh, the UNCLOS, the Conventional Obviously, was signed in 1982, um, it did something very unique. It said that. All of the area that was beyond national jurisdiction, so the area beyond um, 200 nautical miles, we separated into two things. One, the high seas, so the the water column. Um, And in the high seas, uh, everything there could be exploited by any country. Open, free access. That has led to... You have to basically get there first. Exactly. That's the deal. Yeah. Total, Total tragedy of the commons, and we've just seen that... Um, repeated again and again, fish stocks plummeting, um, international organizations in that are meant to manage these fish stocks not being particularly effective. So that's what they did uh, for the water. And that was actually just sort of a continuation of what we've been doing for the past 400 years um, there. But on the seafloor, um, they came up with this entirely new um, idea called then common heritage of, of mankind. But we should really consider the common heritage of humanity or humankind. Um, and what it essentially said was all of the resources, and they thought even in the 70s that there were significant resources with economic potential, all of those resources belonged to humanity as a whole and could very interestingly only be exploited collectively. No wow. state could go and just sort of take those resources, but they had to do it through um, through the International Seabed Authority. And there's a sort of a whole uh, set of geopolitics that was happening um, in the 70s, um, uh, Russia or the Soviet Union at that point, strong supporter of these newly decolonized states, which had an increasing number, um, uh, sorry, a, an increasing number of states, and then, of course, increasing power um, and so it's not really surprising that we have this regime, this very socialist regime, really. Yeah, I was um, going to say that's a shock, shockingly uh, socialist international agreement. Like, and I'm not, I'm not surprised to see to hear that uh, Russia was kind of pushing for that as well. That's that's uh, that's wild. The United States, of course, hated it. Um, yeah, one of the reasons yeah. actually that they that they never ratified this um, was because of was because of those provisions, but. These international agreements, they're all sort of balances between the interests of different states. Right. And so the developed states really wanted to extend their maritime zones, their fishing zones, because Mm -hmm. they had large fishing fleets and they wanted to sort of capture more of the ocean, um, keep it for the coastal states. The developing countries didn't have massive fishing fleets, at least uh, in the 70s and early 80s. Um, And so... In some sense, this extending of the exclusive economic zones was, was not particularly helpful to them. And so the deal was developing countries, you get the resources of the seafloor and developed countries are going to expand um, their, their fishing areas. Right. So effectively, what we did was we thought we were like, OK, we're going to do what we usually do. We're going to find all the people we've spent sort of hundreds and hundreds of years sort of fucking over in different ways and we're going to give them a bad deal and then and then they got what they thought was but then it turns out that what they got was extraordinarily valuable it just took a while to mature yeah well uh i think we need to sort of put a question mark beside um extraordinarily valuable uh because we still don't know actually Mm. how extraordinarily valuable it will be for the countries. Uh, we know that there's pretty significant value in these resources, but how much of that is actually going to get back to the countries? That that we don't know. Well, if fruit production in the 19, uh, let's say the 1930s in South America is any indicator, probably not much. Yeah, that's right. I'm pretty sure Deep Green or the metals company or whatever 
is very, very concerned with making sure that uh, yeah, the, that the profits from what they believe is going to be this multi-trillion-dollar uh, sort of crucial to the entire infrastructural transformation of the world, that the profits from that industry are fairly distributed to uh, commonality of all mankind and aren't just going to use it to like buy uh, uh, buy special Bentleys to crash into one another, uh, for sure. Um, but so we have this we have this thing the, the seabed authority as sort of in theory, anyway, wants to hold the contents of the ocean floor in trust for all mankind. And in order to go down there and get it for yourself, uh, you need to get the, the Seabed Authority to give you the okay, essentially. That's as I understand it. Yeah, exactly. And you have to abide by any regulations that they place on it. Um, and then, of course, you have to pay to the Seabed Authority um, some of the the revenues that you get. Now, of course, everything on the seafloor is owned by humanity as a whole. Um, and so really, all of the money should be going. Um, but of course, there's no way you're going to incentivize private industry to do anything down there um, if you give all of the money to, um, to developing countries. Um, the other sort of crazy thing about Unclosed and what it was doing on the seafloor is it actually created this this third thing called the enterprise. Um, it's very oh. the the authority, the area, the enterprise. Um, a lot of capital letters in this. Mm -hmm. I feel. Yeah, a lot, exactly. a lot of capitalized definite articles. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, I'd like to like see their business cards, like president, <laughs> the authority, president um, of the authority. <laughs> the, but the enterprise was actually intended to be a commercial vehicle to do the exploitation. Um, and so it wasn't going to rely on commercial actors, private commercial actors, but rather rely on the enterprise to do that exploitation. And so then more of the, the, the money would go to developing states. Is the enterprise, would it be, be like a multinational thing, basically? It would essentially be an an, inter, an arm of an international organization, an exploitation okay. arm of the international organization. This uh, is this is all very similar to like like utopian thinking about uh, the exploitation of resources in space before like uh, before those programs kind of dried up and went to the private sector. There is a pretty significant overlap with how we sort of think about international law um, in the the deep sea in the Antarctic, um, and in space. These areas that are sort of um, at the frontiers of what we can effectively govern. And so in order, to get its, in order to get itself into a position regarding the, uh, the, the authority, um, uh, basically Deep Green uh, has, um, has a sort of, is working with, with Nauru, right, to try and get these things fast-tracked. Nauru, of course, being a, um, a an island state, which, as you say, has very sort of a, a very low national budget, uh, which was completely strip mined of all of its phosphates again, by uh, colonial interests, and is now you know and is now essentially again being, I would say, like yeah, is in in the same position again with regard to like Canada via Deep Green or to the West via via Deep Green now the metals company, in and sort of realizing that probably one of the only one of the only ways it's going to be able to support its uh, its citizens, because right now it mostly does that by allowing like Australian immigration like detention camps uh, uh, to, to operate on it, right, uh, is going to be to find some other way to make money. And so again, because because it has been underdeveloped, because it has been made poor by the West, it's getting another opportunity to uh, get some get some uh, 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 income to develop an industry by again, but it. By sort of partnering with this this company, actually allowing seating its seat at the um, at the at one of the most recent meetings to the CEO of Deep Green, allowing him to address the uh, Seabed Authority directly as Nauru, more or less, right? Yeah. So I think we don't want to read sort of too much into to that in particular, because of course sovereign states can do whatever the heck they want. Um, and so if Nauru wishes to have this person um, speak to the authority, um, or I think it was the assembly, actually, uh, then, then they're certainly able to do that. And now that 
uh, in the middle 90s, sort of the, the regulations around how exploitation was going to happen changed to allow more commercial enterprises in. Um, this is allowed, certainly, under unclosed, that commercial interests partner with governments to do exploitation, and then obviously a portion of the revenue go to the sponsoring country, um, and then a portion go back um, go back to the ISA. So this is all allowed. The problem, though, is where there is unequal bargaining power, um, and I think we can certainly see that here, uh, and the the potential of countries being exploited because they don't have a whole number of other options. And Nauru certainly has tried a number of different ways um, uh, to increase its national revenue. Um, many of them have been sort of smacked down um, by, by the West. How have they uh, tried to increase their revenue? Curious. Um, so they, uh, a number of years ago, were trying to get into to international banking, um, and then there was a concern that there would be sort of money laundering through that. Um, and so that was shut down uh, pretty fast. Um, this was sort of, it's happening, was happening both in the Pacific, also um, happening right. in the Caribbean. Kind of like post-Panama Papers stuff. Uh, yeah, this was, this was pre-Panama Papers, but I imagine, yeah, had, had, it, had it succeeded, there, there may have been things in the Panama Papers about it. And I, like, when you talk about unequal bargaining power, I think that's just something I want to I want to focus on as well. Because like an investigation by Bloomberg Green uh, showed that basically, yeah, the agreements with uh, these island states in the South Pacific uh, show that the company just use it has this considerable financial, but also political expert, like technocratic, so as the expert with all the materials and stuff, leverage over these states. And again, just uses essentially is able to further its own ends. Uh, uh, in in its relationships with them, like, I think the idea that this is a partnership is uh, probably uh, an equal partnership is probably not a really creditable one, right? So there are, I think, about twelve thousand people um, on on Nauru, so pretty small. Um, you can imagine that their uh, that their civil service and their foreign service is similarly small. And so technical expertise on Nauru is limited. Um, they have relied certainly on other countries and companies to provide that technical expertise. Um, and so the, there's likely no one um, in Nauru that knows more about this than the minerals company, I'm sorry, than the metals company would. Um, and so we obviously could be concerned that they're not providing full information. Uh, but these type of capacity constraints are, are pretty common um, in small islands. They depend on sort of external expertise. And that's not, not to say that in every situation that is, that is problematic. Um, of course, if a company was being nice or had either the, the public interest in Nauru in mind or the, the global pu public interest, then this actually could be a, a relatively beneficial partnership um, for these small islands. Not, <laughs> but yeah, well, but, we but, may just leave it at but because yeah, yeah. I'm re I'm reminded. Uh, we were talking about this before we started typing, but I'm reminded of a certain uh, couple from California, the Resnicks, and their relationship with uh, Fiji, mm. and and. Uh, Bryce, you're saying Fiji has a little more flex economically than a place like Nauru, but still a very exploitative relationship between a uh, nation and private capital abroad. Yeah, yeah Fiji, Fiji has a, a, a lot more, both diplomatic ca uh, capacity. Um, Fiji has a military. Uh, so these are, these are some of the smallest states in the world. And... They're really not making a great case for, uh, you know, a true libertarian like sea, sea platform nations here. Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you, you get an oil platform with 12 people on it, your own currency and your own passports, but no expertise on anything. Yeah, so you're you're get there ready to get buffaloed by the you're first guy get that rolled. comes along with a SPAC. Uh, so if you want to talk a little bit about the history, right, uh, this, this company started as uh, Nautilus Minerals. 
and it secured a permit uh, for uh, to go to to the seabed in 2011, um, which was in the territorial waters of Papua New Guinea. Uh, but then again, and so it, it it what happened was right because it had another one of these sort of you know, bilateral agreements uh, with the with the Papua New Guinean government, uh, where they were going to guarantee a certain amount of investment into the venture. But then it was. Um, the company actually went bankrupt because of sustained opposition by uh, various coastal communities in Papua New Guinea, uh, and uh, essentially left the government of, of Papua New Guinea not a place with a lot of extra money to throw around, with a debt of 125 million American dollars, uh, to, in order to fulfill their end of that agreement for investing in a certain amount of the company, um, and that's what they deemed the, that that 15 percent of the company be worth. Uh, of course, Gerard Barron, a guy, an Australian man, who um, now the CEO. Uh, uh, who just like invested a couple hundred thousand dollars in it? He somehow ended up walking away with thirty-one million, right? So uh, from from Papua New Guinea's uh, coffers to this one guy, uh, and then this group of guys uh, who have been working at Nautilus have just been sort of doing the same thing kind of for ten years. Uh, so it was founded by a guy called David Hayden, um, and, uh, and so then they started uh, uh, Deep Green after that. Now the metals company. Uh, so. Before before Nautilus, uh, uh, Baron was just uh, an ad guy. <laughs> you know, he was he he made he started with an ad tech company in two thousand and one, uh, and just invested in Nautilus Minerals. "Quote: I originally invested in Nautilus not because I knew about mining, but because I just sort of thought it sounded cool. <laughs> it's, it sounded cool and science fictiony. So uh, so off he goes, and then just basically gets propelled from success to success." Despite the fact that, yeah, that's sort of never really does that much, uh, it gets a lot of money from the government of Papua New Guinea, um, and now that sort of the the particular kinds of things that you can mine from the deep sea are in high demand, as you say, Bryce. It's economically viable. Uh, this, yeah, this ad guy has just turned into now what someone who is branding himself as a kind of eco warrior um, for uh, via via deep sea mining. Um, yeah, uh, and you know this is uh, this is a quote from um, Matthew Gianni, uh, who is from the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Uh, he says, "Look, that this this these companies were sort of quite small right for a long time, but now with the SPAC craze, um, you can sort of you can paint yourself as this ESG um, uh, organization, and then you just get a whole load of um, a whole load of people to invest in your company that sort of." Uh, that capital markets in previous years have basically deemed sort of worthless or not investing in or whatever, um, and you know uh, that he's that you. But by doing this, you sort of unleash a whole lot of capital into the area, and either you know again start doing this uh, activity, which is let's just say, uh, as we said earlier, has an unproven but I think we might say risky environmental risk profile. Or just release a lot of money into a bunch of specs, which are very risky, tend to lose retail investors a lot of money. Uh, so all in all, it seems like uh, just a great organization, uh, really top, just top-notch moral fiber, and uh, really wonderful for the world that it exists. Um, so uh, Gianni says, uh, Baron is a wildcatter who may provide the political and financial impetus for the big players to jump into deep sea mining, noting that shipping giant AP Moller Maersk holds a significant stake in the deep green SPAC. So there's like this risk, right, that, the, that, that by making it look sort of fun and trendy and cool and sort of associated with Elon Musk, because, hey, it's the batteries for the cars and I like the cool car, man, right, that you can, it will create the market for uh, much bigger companies that can actually execute on uh, exploitation to um, like, a, like, a, like a Rio Tinto or a Barrick or whatever. To come in and then do this themselves on a much bigger scale and do more than you know, just do PowerPoint presentations and 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 get paid by investors. Like that's the concern that he raises. This is, I think, why these new mining regulations, which the ISA has to produce, are going to be so important. Um, because depending on how those are structured, we could have an incredibly environmentally friendly. Uh, mining happening well maybe, maybe not incredibly uh, incredibly environmentally friendly but certainly not harmful um, and also structured the right way there could be significant capital that is flowing to developing countries of course structured the wrong way um, it could be harmful and the capital going to developing countries 
may be maybe limited. Now, um, I think ba- based on everything, <laughs> based on an understanding of um, history, both recent and not, I think even if we can leave it unsaid, I think we could probably predict pretty pretty cleanly <laughs> which which side capital will be pushing for there. Well, I think, of course, what, <laughs> which side uh, yeah, private enterprise will be pushing for. I think it's a little more difficult to figure out exactly what countries will be pushing for. Because if there is not going to be a lot of money that comes from this, and I was reading somewhere that the amount that could be shared with countries may be as low as sort of $100,000 a year. Well, then it's entirely possible that countries are like, for $100,000, it may just not be worth it to have this sort of rampant uh, deep sea mining. Let's rather have some stronger controls on it, potentially increase the amount that uh, is coming to, to countries. Of course, it'll increase the cost to private enterprise, but as long as it's still potentially economically viable, then then that could go ahead. So it is a little unclear to me at this point exactly how countries um, will react to this. Because remember, of course, these resources are held for all of humanity. Um, And so the benefit to any individual country um, is rather limited. Mm. I I think it's, if we can... If, if we can specifically think about Canada, I mean, we know what Canada does when it's time to write a mining regulation, uh, which is, uh, you know, minimum royalties, maximum extraction, as soon as possible, as much as possible. Yeah, and we'll help you do it. We'll walk into, um, we'll send our ambassador into the Romanian parliament and say, hey, uh, you guys were socialist and we've got some new ideas about mining regulations. Yeah, that's right. Take, take it from us. Or which we did in Peru, or what we did in uh, Ethiopia, right? We we just we absolutely love to write a let's say very capital friendly mining regulation. So I don't I can't say I necessarily know what countries will do, but I think I can predict with some confidence what Canada will do, which is what we always do, which is which is basically drill, baby, drill. I can't I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm thinking this right now. Maybe this is stupid, but like. Would this not be better for everyone, like the countries, the environment, and the, and the private capital entities themselves, if we just kept it in the ridiculous realm of speculation and SPACs, you know, <laughs> like everyone gets what they want. Uh, the, the environment is left alone. Um, they can trade, you know, prospective futures on these, on these endeavors that may not ever happen. And so what uh, you're saying is it should be NFTs. It should just, yeah. it, no, no, there should be no companies involved. Yeah, just no companies involved. mining, yeah, themed NFT, NFT. Basically. People can trade back and forth to one another. And then that, we leave it at that. The path of least harm. Yeah, perfect. The, I, think, I think the two of you should go down to uh, the next ISA um, assembly in Jamaica and, and propose exactly that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how much uptake you're going to get. Um, yeah, so this is, this is a difficult question in that if there are resources that are necessary for an economic transition that helps with climate change, and these resources can be exploited in a way that doesn't damage the environment and provides resources to developing countries that desperately need it, it's... It's hard to say, let's just leave them on the bottom of the ocean. Um, And so it will be exceptionally important for, I would say, civil society to keep a really close eye on what's happening as these mining regulations are being developed and really sort of push for for them to be stronger. I think it's also in countries' interest to do that. Um, no one, like, honestly wants the seafloor to be all screwed up. Um, and it's just then about sort of balancing, can we have enough environmental regulation? Can we have enough uh, return of revenues to developing countries? And then still have uh, an appropriate return for the, the private actors. If we can do all of those three things, Great. Perfect. We can move forward. 
whether or not we are able to do those three things or whether or not, yeah, other people think that those are the three things that we should be doing, I that's sort of above, above my pay grade. I'm certain that we're going to nail the third thing. That is going to be no problem. <laughs> Again, assuming it's economically viable in, in reality, right? <laughs> we are going to absolutely knock the third thing out of the park. But so what's, what's happened most recently, right? Is that as this as this sort of push to get enough regulations to start doing it has been going, sort of spearheaded by these actors you've been talking about, uh, the WWF World Wildlife Federation Federation has called for a ban on deep sea mining, and that ban has actually been signed on to by several large companies, including BMW, Google, Volvo, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, very large organizations. Um, and of course, the, the metals company has decided to write an open letter in response to this, which is some cucked-ass shit. Uh, they said, at the metals company, we agree that seafloor minerals development should be approached cautiously and with an exacting commitment to science-based impact analysis and environmental prediction. Uh, <laughs> question mark. Um, they say that, uh, look, they, they, we actually share the goal of the, of the WWF and others for achieving a net zero emissions future while protecting the oceans and their ecosystems from climate change. Um, and that reducing these emissions from transportation and energy storage are key to protecting these ecosystems. Uh, and c- consumer brands that refuse to consider alternative mineral supplies will be complicit in increased do- deforestations, toxic tailings, child labor, and destruction of territorial habitats and carbon sinks. Po- polymetallic nodules, on the other hand, can deliver key battery metals with up to 90% uh, less carbon emissions equivalent and no child labor. It's good that they won't be using child labor. They keep uh, mentioning child labor. I wonder yeah. why. Yeah. <laughs> or if it has some kind of a uh, moral purpose, you know. And, and so coercive. You, you, but what you see, right, is you see basically making this a very clear-cut moral argument. Where I think the discussion we've had over the last sort of hour or so, Bryce, I think shows that if any, it is at best you could say it is far from clear-cut. It's as far from as clear-cut as they're preventing it. But they've got a spec that they want to sell. And it's, it's much nicer to tell a black and white story to an investor where you say, if you invest in this spec, you will be saving the world. You'll be ending child labor. You'll be doing all these wonderful things. And in reality, I think it's just much thinner than that. The conclusive evidence as to what it will actually do is relatively thin. Their capabilities to actually execute are not that of, say, um, a gigantic mining firm. You know, that this is... I don't want to say smoke and mirrors, but this is quite, there is quite a lot of embellishment or quite a lot of certainty that is projected that is not really there, right? I think it's certainly fair to say that there's a lot of unknowns um, in, in this area. And to say that this is demonstrably better than mining these resources on land uh, is not wholly clear at this point. That said, mining these resources on land is terrible. Um, and yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like there is deforestation, there is child labor. So they're, they're, they're not wrong on those things. It's just whether or not on balance, what they're going to be doing in the deep sea, in the area that it will be very hard to know exactly what they're doing, um, is better <laughs> yes. than what is happening on land. An area that we can see can regulate um, a little easier, have uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that are monitoring these things. Um, I don't, well, maybe WWF has its own little sub and it's going to be uh, tooling around in the, the Clarion Clipperton zone, checking things out. But I think it's, I think it's less likely. I do like the idea of seafloor police though, uh, for mining companies. That's, that's oh, interesting course. to me. Yeah, get uh, get pulled over in a little bathosphere. Very fun. Abyssal cups. <laughs> a, a very cute idea. This can be your next science <laughs> fiction. Um, yes. Novel. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Dan, I'm I'm pitching this to Peter Watts immediately. Yeah, Dan Beckner, <laughs> Deep Patrol. Deep Patrol. Um, yeah. But uh, noting that it's getting <laughs> getting a little late over here in uh, jolly London, um, I think that seems like a good as play as good a place as any uh, to close it. So I want to say, Bryce, uh, thank you so much for coming and uh, hanging out with us today. It was yeah, very interesting you, to talk to you. Um, thanks very much for having me, guys. And uh, yeah, I would say let's, uh, let's watch this space because a ton is going to be happening um, over the next two years. 
And I think we need to very critically analyze these, um, these press releases, these things that are coming out um, of this process. Because, it, yeah, it could, be, it could be incredibly environmental damaging. And that's a concern, of course. Indeed. Uh, so we are going to withdraw the usual advice we give of uncritically believe tech, uh, 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 sort of uh, hypey uh, tech company press releases. Critically read these specifically. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, it's, it's been very fun to talk to you. And don't forget, Bottle and listeners, uh, it's $7 a month. You get a second episode every week uh, on patreon.com slash dubottleman. So this do week. remember to do that. This week, I think we're doing sort of the opposite of what we did just now. Uh, we, and we are doing another Corner Gas episode with Palma from Seeking Derangements, which is going to be a ton of fun. So do check that out. Are you guys suggesting uh, that discussing the deep, deep sea isn't a ton of fun? <laughs> it's a ton of fun in a different way. I'll tell you what, Bryce. Watching a bunch of Corner Gas is not a ton of fun either. I think I, I promise uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we will see you on the bonus episode then. Bye, everybody. Bye, folks. <laughs> <laughs>